Victor Plasma episode 80, Jack of Shadows by Roger Zelazny. Right, the person who put me on to Jack of Shadows, um, and this was long before I'd read any Zelazny, was coincidentally a goth called Jack, and he also told me about Cordwain and Smith and G.K. Chesterton. Um, and that was about 20 years ago, and I struggled to get hold of a copy of either Jack of Shadows or the Amber series. They weren't in print in the UK at that time. I eventually got my copy of the Big Book of Amber on a business trip to New Jersey. And as for my copy of Jack of Shadows, the copy I have is published by Signet, which is an imprint of the New American Library in New York. The first printing was 1972. That's one year after the copyright date. So it's got this brilliant uh, sort of teasing text on the back that I'm going to read. A world half in darkness, half in light. The earth no longer rotates. Science rules the day side of the globe. Magic rules the world of night. And Jack of Shadows, Shadow Jack the Thief, who broke the compact and duped the Lord of High Dudgeon, who was beheaded in Iglis and rose again from the dung pits of Glyve, who drank the blood of a vampire and swallowed a stone. Shadow Jack walks in silence and in shadows to seek vengeance upon his enemies. Who are his foes? And who would despise him or love the Lord of Bats, Smage of the Jackass Ears, the Colonel who never died, the Bortian, and Quasar, winner of the Hell Games, and abductor of the voluptuous Fiend? One by one, Shadow Jack would seek them out and have his revenge, building his power as he goes. And once his vengeance is obtained, he would come to terms with all others who were against him. He would unite the world of High Dudgeon, destroy the land of filth, and bring peace to the Shadow Guard. But to accomplish all, Jack of Shadows must find Colwinia, the key that was lost. Pretty epic. Now, according to Wikipedia, the book's title, though not the character, is an homage to Jack Vance. Now, I'm not sure what to believe there. The, the, the first chapter strongly emulates the, the eyes of the overworld and uh, Kugel the Clever from the mid-60s. Um, but anyway, this is going to follow the normal format, which will be a synopsis. Then I'm going to talk about themes and role-playing games, and then some further reading. So, here we go. It's the synopsis. The setting uh, is a tidally locked earth where the light side uses technology and science and is sceptical of magic, and the dark side uses magic and has a much more medieval outlook. And in the dark side, powers are concentrated in the various lords and uh, usually connected to a particular territory, although our protagonist Jack has his powers instead tied to shadow where he's the strongest. And being a tidally locked world, there's a couple of MacGuffins in play. One is the shield that protects the world, which would would otherwise, I guess, be uninhabitable. And this presumably protects the light side from the sun and the excess heat that bleeds off enough to warm up the dark. The other MacGuffin is the machine at the heart of everything which stops the earth turning in the first place. So we'll talk about the characters then, and our primary character is of course Shadow Jack, aka Jack of Shadows, aka John Shade. Uh, and he's initially presented as a sort of rogue with magical powers, intent on stealing an object called the Hellflame. He's a darksider, which means he has no soul, and he'll reform himself on death at the western pole of the world, uh, the Dung Pits of Glyve. Uh, but as the novel goes on, we realise he's a lot more, and you're possibly one of the most powerful people on the planet. Uh, and Jack's nemesis is the Lord of Bats in High Dudgeon. He's a similarly powerful Darksider, and their grudge comes from Jack stealing from him some time in their shared past, and now he in turn wants to drive Jack insane. 
There's a couple of other minor Darksiders to talk about, including the, the Baron of Drakheim, who basically seeks to indenture all people who reform at the Dung Pits and cross his territory. Uh, there's also the Colonel Who Never Died, Evine, his daughter, who's Jack's object of affection, and a character called Rosalie, who, who I think uh, Jack seduces as a youth. But because time passes differently for him when he's dead, she's a, a wise old crone by the time they meet again. There's a couple of minor characters like Quasar and Smage, and you know, remarkably only because they have a hand in Jack's death at the start of the novel. And lastly, there's this character called Morningstar, and he's a sort of devil creature bound into rock until such time as he can see the dawn, which of course, in a tidally locked world, he's never going to see the dawn, so he's perpetually got one half of him in rock, and he's possibly Jack's only friend. The latter visits him from time to time, brings him wine, uh, you know, they have conversations, and he's a, he's a kind of this enigmatic angel figure who's, he has a uniquely objective view of the relationship between magic and technology, which we'll get to in a bit. Okay, the hook for the story. Uh, our hook is, when Jack arrives at the Hell Games with the intent of stealing the Hell Flame, he's grasped up by Smage and Quasar to the Master of Games, who then arranges his execution as a you know, preemptive measure, on the basis that he's a Darksider and the loss of a life isn't much to him, despite the time it will take him to reform his body, and the fact that he still feels pain. And as a consequence, Jack winds up in the dung pits of Glyve and begins to trudge away from the Western Pole with, well, revenge as his one motivation. This occupies the first seven chapters in which it's all solid fantasy stuff. You know, he defeats and devours a vampire. He also consumes this murderous psychic rock. Um, and he runs into Rosalie, then the Baron, and finally his nemesis, the Lord of Bats. Um... So then, then we get to the kind of the rising action. The, the Lord of Bats imprisons him in a prison which is always light. You know, it's fasted like a jewel and it always emits light in all directions so there's never any shadow. So he can't use his powers to escape. And the intention, as previously mentioned, is to drive Jack mad, for which he employs a number of methods. You know, Evine turns up as the Lord of Bats' lover. Um, Jack's tormented by a beast called the Borshin. He obviously gets out, um because otherwise it wouldn't be much of a story. Um, and the Lord of Bats is added to a shit list, uh, as well as a few other people along the way. And this is where he formulates his true plan, which is to recover Corwinia, the key that was lost, which will grant him the power he needs to master his enemies. And to do this, he has to venture into the light side. And this is where the novel takes a twist. And it's like, it's almost so sudden, it's almost a different book. Suddenly we're in a world very much like our own, you know, with motor vehicles and aircraft and people smoking cigarettes and scientific method and all that. Um, and here, Jack adopts the moniker John Shade. So for five years, he masquerades as this academic at a, a lightside university, apparently teaching about dark side anthropology, uh, although his real motive is to use the lightside computer technology to reassemble the key, which he does. And then he flees the light side back to the dark. So having recovered his key, which is in the form of a bunch of computer printouts, so it's not, a, not quite a literal key, but it's some sort of codex, he uses this to work through the names on his list and, and dispatch them creatively. And of course the dark siders can't actually die, but he, he finds ways to uh, dispatch them again on their return from the dung pits. They effectively stay dead. Evine becomes his lover, although it's obvious that while she's outwardly 
happy with their arrangement. She's she's actually miserable. And Jack himself has more or less now achieved everything he wanted. He's transformed his enemy's territory into his own shadow guard. This is his personal realm, a sort of sprawling, magical underworld of shadows. But then, at this point, Rosalie turns up at his door and she she basically holds this metaphorical mirror up to him and shows him that despite his achievements, he's not actually satisfied. And as a consequence, he visits Morningstar again. Um, and it's kind of inferred that he sets about freeing Morningstar by destroying the machine at the world's centre, which stops the world from turning, thus allowing Morningstar to break three because he'd finally see the dawn. Uh, and this actually achieves and brings about massive tectonic events in the process. You know, it's a, it's an apocalyptic event that he started. And the novel ends with basically him seemingly falling to his destruction, we assume, um, and not knowing whether Morningstar, who's you know now free of his prison, will catch him in time. Really great ending. So that's a novel that's quite short. Um, read it very quickly. And apparently when it was written, it was, you know, just written as a single pass-through by, by uh, Zelazny. No edits either. So now I'm going to pick it apart for some themes. And there's a couple of interesting ones. Um, the first one I want to talk about is magic and technology. And, you know, the fact that there's magic and technology isn't really interesting in itself. But the exclusion of one or the other, depending on which side of the dawn you're on, is interesting. And as you get closer to the boundary, magic or technology stops working and its counterpart gets a foothold. Uh, um, Garth Nix uses this idea in the 1990s in Sabriel, which we covered, I think, it's like the second episode we did. And uh, and the sequels, of course. Um, and that's where the technological ancestriere uh, borders on the magical old kingdom. And near the wall between the two technology becomes unreliable and magic is stronger uh, particularly when the wind blows south um, and this is also something i think that uh, that torg did um, with its possibility wards although i never actually played it but it, it had regions which were more or less apt to magic uh, and therefore anathema to technology and presumably vice versa um anyway, obviously in rpgs where we're no stranger to mixing magic and tech together and I think I can safely say there's a couple of ways you can do this. You can take the Torg idea of multiple realities bordering on one another, so the magic or the tech coming out of those realities is subject to local conditions once it's taken outside that particular you know, native reality. Um, the alternative, of course, is the way that Rifts or Shadowrun does it, and, you know, glue all the worlds together, um, mix it all up and have magic and technology coexist. Uh, although usually not entirely compatible, you've, you've got a trade-off between magic and technology. Um, and, and I'm pretty sure that, I, mean, I know Shadowrun does, and I think that Rift does as well, that says that uh, cybernetic alteration messes a lot with your magical mojo. I think it's also fair to say it's a lot more coherent and focused in Shadowrun, but I don't actually care for either. I I would much prefer, you know, the... A sort of third way of doing this sort of magic meets cyberpunk, which would be the suggestion in GURP cyberpunk, which was to have um, you know a magical internet that could be hacked, uh, magical cyberware, capitalist corporate dominated society with mages at the top of the food chain, that sort of thing. Um, so it's it's kind of a, 
a reskinning of cyberpunk with a sort of capitalist magical society. But all of that is kind of getting away from the main point I want to make. There is an interesting quote, sort of halfway through the story, uh, on Jack's first escape from the Lord of the Bats. He visits Morningstar for the first time, and they have this conversation, which uh, Morningstar has this to say about how people from light or dark perceive the machine in the centre of the world. Unquote. I have heard Daysiders say that the core of the world is a molten demon, that the temperature increases as one descends towards it, that if the crust of the world be pierced, then fires leap forth and melted minerals build volcanoes. Yet I know that volcanoes are the doings of fire elementals who, if disturbed, melt the ground around them and hurl it upwards. They exist in small pockets. One may descend far past them without the temperature increasing. Travelling far enough, one comes to the centre of the world, which is not molten, which contains the machine, with great springs, as in a clock, and gears and pulleys and counterbalances. I know this to be true, for I have journeyed that way, and been near to the machine itself. Still, the daysiders have ways of demonstrating that their view is the correct one. I was almost convinced by the way one man explained it, though I knew better. How can this be? Well, you were both correct, said Morningstar. It is the same thing that you both describe, although neither of you sees it as it really is. Each of you colours reality in keeping with your means of controlling it, for if it is uncontrollable, you fear it. Sometimes, then, you colour it incomprehensible, in your case a machine, in theirs a demon. So, you know, there's this idea that the workings of the world are warped by the observer. And that brings me to the last point, the subject of magic and technology, which is objectivity. The shift in perspective partway through from dark side to light side and from medieval to modern day put me very strongly in mind of Corwin in the first book of Amber, Nine Princes in Amber. And that book was published one year, just one year before Jack of Shadows in 1970. Um, and it's very much that we have a, a sort of fantasy sorcerer from a medieval world fully naturalised in a technological one. And of course, in Amber, Corwin is aware that all realities are shadows of Amber. So, consider this. In 1970, Zelazny writes Nine Princes in Amber about a bunch of magicians who know that there is only one true version of reality and many shadows which they may inhabit. Then in 1971, Zelazny writes Jack of Shadows where there is a dual perspective on reality, that of light and dark, and, according to Morningstar, neither have a fully objective view of the world, but there is one which neither can fully grasp. And the difference here is that these characters, by their perspective on reality, have chosen to exclude the equivalent and opposite force. So think about this, you know, maybe if you want to mechanise it, um, take an example from Ron Edwards' Troll Babe. That game has a single stat which is used for both magic and fighting. You, you roll under it to uh, to work out whether you're going to succeed at fighting. You try to roll over it for magic, and um, you roll equal to or above it or equal to or below it, whichever is less likely for social interaction, I think. Um, Troll Babe does a few other interesting things with scale and scope of play, although that's not really relevant here. But the point is that you can kind of represent two conflicting philosophies in a single person with a single stat. 
The last point I want to make about this boundary between light and dark and between magic and technology is that it's fuzzy. You know, it's, it's kind of, you know, the, the interface between oil and water when it's been shaken up or a rag layer, as we would describe in, in some chemical engineering. Or if you're a French chemical engineer, it's creme. But anyway, it's, it's kind of like an emulsion zone where both magic and technology work sort of. Um, and I think I would argue that this has got to be the most interesting place to play in the world. And that kind of brings me on to the second theme I want to talk about, which is very obviously the tidally locked world. Now, the world of Jack of Shadows is, of course, science fantasy, and it's a massive fudge to get life to exist in both total light and total darkness using the shield. Um, if you took a more hard science approach, you would you know, get incredibly high temperatures at the eastern pole that would uh, you know, boil the seas and you get massive winds that would uh, desiccate everything. And at the other side, you know, you, you get to you know, the Western Pole, you get to near, near absolute zero, that'd be totally uninhabitable as well. Uh, and even if you're living in a Goldilocks zone heat-wise, um, you know, say somehow the temperate regions near the middle, you'd have other problems. You know, you'd probably get, you'd probably get bands of temperature concentric with the poles, but you, you probably also have massive problems with the weather. Um, there's a popular paper published um, on a Cornell website, I think, which I'll link to. Um, it's called Life on a Tidally Locked Planet by Ashok K. Single. And they say that because you have a superheated climate at one pole and supercooled at the other, where gases could be condensed to liquids or even solids, you get this kind of violent exchange of atmosphere with, um, with sort of the, the atmosphere moving back and forward over this dusk zone where you assume most people would live. And it would be kind of more or less an ongoing planet-wide hurricane all the time and you might get natural shelter that could you know ameliorate that but still life's going to be pretty harsh for colonists and life as we know it may not evolve although you know that that's the obviously life may find a way and be quite creative so we know this environment's going to be really tough to live in but there's a couple of really interesting other things that Ashot Signal's paper says. Um, the first one, fairly obviously, uh, no concept of day or night or time passing. If you live at or near the equator in this sort of dusk zone, the, the sun's always going to be very low in the sky, and the sky's going to be red. Um, so people are going to kind of have to artificially regulate their sleep cycles or evolve out of their circadian rhythms um, maybe even permanently be semi-awake. You know, can you imagine a, a world where everyone is basically awake all the time, but they kind of go through bouts of waking REM sleep or something, and they, they hallucinate stuff? You know, that, that could be the source of a lot of mythology right there. Um, the second thing I found was really interesting uh, was the paper suggests no astronomers, because for most people, they can't see the stars. Now, um, you might be able to see the stars if you go into the dark zone, which is utterly uninhabitable. But for, for most cultures, they will they won't have any kind of uh, appreciation of star signs, um, and they won't. You know, mostly it'll be a completely alien concept to the population. You know, given how much of our polytheistic myth is derived from the stars, 
that kind of suggests uh, if you're going to have a polytheistic society, it's going to come from somewhere else. So then the question you've got is where do the where do the gods come from? Not, not the literal gods, maybe, but where do where does the concept of a god come from? Um, you know, you you could have a monotheistic belief system that's based purely on the fact that light is the uh, you know light is the god that you can see. Uh, or it could be geotheistic because it, you know light and darkness has equal and opposite. And clearly, there, there's an argument that that's exactly what you have in Jack and Shadows. It's kind of a single belief system that contains two sects that are aware of and fear the other, but they still acknowledge the other's existence. You know, they, they it, and this also works in a setting that exists in the dusk zone, uh, where both magical and technology are present, and both kind of work. You know, two different kinds of divine magic that sort of work if the circumstances are right. Then I started sort of thinking about a, an alternative monotheistic setup. So consider not just a tidally locked world, but a tidally locked world suspended between two singularities, you know, one white hole and one black hole. So light and matter can escape the white hole. So let's say the eastern pole of the planet is constantly replenished then all the matter that comes from the white hole flows through the temperate regions, and then it flows into the dark zone, into this underworld, and gets stripped away by the black hole. Um, and obviously humanity, or you know, whatever sentient life exists, mostly exists in the dusk regions, although maybe some things have adapted to be in at, at the extremes. And if that happened, if you had a constant flow of matter over the sphere, then of course they live an existence of constantly moving towards the light in order to sustain life and maintain their own position. And you could, you could do this by a couple of ways. You could have cities that have their own locomotion and are forever moving relative to the ground that's shifting so that they stay at the equator. Um, or maybe you have cities that are anchored at some bedrock below and the you know the matter that flows around the foundations doesn't move the the, the foundations of the cities um you know maybe what flows is your water or silt or or light or something or maybe you have no cities at all maybe you have no nations that are described by land masses instead you have uh, you have a nomadic cultures which constantly move towards the east your civilizations, maybe you you say that they're birthed in light, they achieve excellence at dusk, and then they decline in darkness. Maybe that happens literally, or maybe it's a metaphor that this society says. So then the setting has no stars, and it just has a world suspended between two gravitational loci. But if the inhabitants see the main source of light as also the source of creation... They might have a few ways they regard gods. Obviously, they, they might say, oh, yes, it's a monotheistic. There's a single creator entity. Or it's a, a duotheistic with a, a necessary creator-destroyer. And possibly the void is the, the underworld that threatens to consume the rest of the world. And it is a necessary part of the balance. So those work as sort of abstract forces. What about polytheism? I think, you know, that those have to... Those have to sort of be demigods who have somehow achieved a sort of permanence. So let's say you want to have in this world characters who are functionally immortal, incredibly long-lived. They've seen these civilizations come and go. Maybe they are the characters. Let's say they, they all come from light. 
and they thrive and live around mortal cities for a time. But really the kind of treading water that they're, they're desperately trying to hang on to mortal society, despite the fact that, uh, you know, mortal society is constantly progressing, constantly moving east, and they're trying to keep up with them. Once they start to slip into the past, they kind of that they're consigned into the underworld. You know, so the idea is that they they rise up in the in the light and then they slip into darkness at the end of their um, at the end of their era. And maybe they dwell in the underworld for a time and they can come back with enough power and motivation. But mostly the lives of these mythological beings, uh, these immortals, just describe a slow descent from the light into the void. And Jack of Shadows, the Darksiders reform at the Western Pole when they die, and perhaps that's what happens to these immortal heroes too. And if they if they manage to reintegrate their form before they cross the event horizon of the Dark Singularity, then they can come back, and they probably come back crueler and darker than before. And you know, Jack's death does transform him. He entertains thoughts of vengeance. He preys on lesser beings, and he eventually destroys the world. So let's say you have immortal beings on this slow fall towards the black hole. Every time they're killed, it'll take longer for them to reform. And one day they won't be able to get back in time. So instead of reforming at the Western Pole, they reform nearer and nearer to it. And each time they get, they get a, a stronger sense that the next time they're slain, they may not make it out of the singularity's mouth. So, hence, the finite lives, despite seeing infinite in the eyes of mortals. That's the immortal perspective on existence. But then there will, of course, be the mortal side. So, uh, you know, you, you need to counterbalance those who worship the Godhead, which is the source of all light. Uh, and you may well have apocalyptic cults who ally themselves with the void. Uh, and possibly the interaction of light and void is the interference pattern in reality that makes magic possible. Hmm. Okay, um, I'm going to just finish off the episode by talking about some further reading. The first book I want to talk about is The City in the Middle of the Night by Charlie Jane Anders. I started reading this after uh, I'd finished Jack of Shadows and I talked about Tidally Locked Worlds to my other half and she mentioned it and it's fabulous. So I'm about a good portion of the way through. And this is a Tidally Locked World in a hard SF setting, so... Uh, they are actually colonists from Earth, and apparently uh, some sort of Earth at the end of its existence, where the various nations, um, the, the superpowers of the times, assembled a, a colony ship, the what they call the mothership, to find a place where they can they can uh, survive. And they've chosen a planet that's tidally locked, uh, which has all kinds of problems. Um, presumably they chose it for a good reason. Um, but the um, lots and lots of interesting details about how one survives on such a planet. Um, farming. They have these things called farm wheels, which are basically massive rotating um, vertical farms, I guess, that are rotated such that they get shone on, they shine on the crops and they simulate night and day for the crops that they're trying to grow. Uh, they have uh, a philosophy based around circadian rhythms and strict enforcement of morning and night. Um, so everyone's lives are regulated. Time is seen as a prison to certain revolutionaries. And um, it's even illegal to sleep at the wrong time. Uh, so night and day are totally simulated. And there are a few other scientific mysteries in there. Although a lot of the discussion is political 
and it revolves around the way that this this society of survivors, um, which seems to be a sort of society of colonists, which they have previously had resources and technology, but those days are past, and now they don't. They they have very few vehicles anymore, and they also don't really have much of the resources that they came with, and therefore life is pretty hard. And there is a there is this enforced notion of of, of a worth of a work ethic, um, which is tied into the um, the need to wake and sleep at certain times, and uh, and it has the expected. Um, various characters disparities between uh certain social casts it has a, a bunch of interesting characters some uh, one sort of a lower class girl who is nearly killed fairly early on and survives um a uh, an upper class student who is also an activist there's also a um a fairly violent um i think they call themselves the the resourceful couriers they're characters who carry uh, goods between different cities in order to to trade them because of course venturing outside the cities because of the, the whole climate is quite dangerous so really terrific uh, real page turner enjoying it very much at the moment the second book i want to mention briefly is christopher priest's inverted world uh, this is described as a an infinite world in a finite universe um, and it kind of considers the earth as as hyperbolic so it's kind of um there's there's a very small region of the earth that's actually apparently inhabited to the to the citizens although that fact early on is is also contradicted in certain ways um it is a sort of puzzle planet you know you read it and you wonder what's actually going on with this world but basically humanity is in in a city and the city is moving constantly so that it remains in the optimum position uh, and they they have a guild that goes outside the city uh, and works to lay tracks so that the whole city can be pulled along at the right rate. And they go usually up to the future, which is where the city is going to scout out the area. And occasionally they have causes to go down to the past, which is where the city's been. Uh, one of my favourite Christopher Priest novels, probably my favourite SF novel of his alongside A Dream of Wessex. The last book I want to mention is uh, non-fiction, actually, and the scope is a lot broader than the other ideas here. It's called Arctos, and it's by Jocelyn Godwell. The, the, the full title is Arctos, the Polar Myth in Science, Symbolism, and Nazi Survival. So um, lots and lots of crazy stuff in it. Um, it's uh, it's packed with theory about the, the interior Earth, the... Um, the various stages of humanity as espoused by uh, you know theof theosophists you know, helen blavatsky etc nazi occultism the black sun most of this as i say is out of scope but there is an interesting bit in it which talks about the poles um the north pole and the south pole now this is some some of the um some of the the sources from this include things like william reed's the phantom of the poles which posited an interior earth and and came up with all sorts of crazy ideas for why the earth is flattened at the poles because actually there's a great big hole where you can get into the interior earth and why they're northern lots well it's it's reflections from an interior sun and all sorts of other crazy theories but the the one thing that really stuck with me was this idea that the pure waters flow out of the north pole and then run down through the world and then concentrate in the south pole 
uh, as a sort of, uh, you know, that ultimate um, seat of evil. So this idea that the North Pole is good, the South Pole is evil, and then the, the waters go inside and, and uh, inside the Earth and are, I presume, recycled, purified again. And there's, there's also some mythology about it inside being Agartha, this imperishable sacred land, um, and also the evil city Shambhala. So lots of crazy stuff there, but generally this idea about stuff coming out and perpetually rolling over the earth and then get rolling back inside the earth and coming out again after having been uh, spiritually cleaned whatever whatever you like so i think that's the end of the episode if you enjoyed this please like share and subscribe and, and if you like maybe even engage on social media uh, music as always is by chris Zabriskie. and until next time thanks for listening bye bye